to the Pin to Profit Podcast. This show is the fiction author's one-stop shop for all things writing, from pinning captivating prose to the nitty-gritty of grammar to tips, tricks, and insider advice on marketing to turn your passion for writing into cold, hard cash. Because the only thing better than writing the next great American novel is making a fortune doing it. Am I right? With our guidance, you'll be raking in book sales faster than a cheetah on roller skates chasing a squirrel with a winning lottery ticket. So grab a cup of coffee and let's get ready to go on a rollicking ride into the realm of riding riches. Because the Pin to Profit podcast starts now. All right, and we are live. Welcome once again, all you aspiring Austin and Hemingway hopefuls to a new episode of the Pen to Profit podcast. I am your friendly neighborhood copy editor and host, Ray Evans, and got a real special guest for you today. <clears throat> Dick Weibrow is a best-selling author of humorous supernatural fiction, a former CNN producer, major market rock jock, and stand-up comedian. He spent his life avoiding a proper job. Dick's done all this with a haze of narcolepsy, but these days sees the condition as a superpower. Born in Canada, raised in the U.S., he now lives in New Zealand with an amazing woman and far too many pets. Uh, so basically, we're going to be uh, talking about uh, humor writing, but I got about 50 questions just based off of that bio. But before we get into that, Dick, do you want to say hi to the audience and tell us what uh, your favorite book is and why? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I would say hi from uh, from Auckland, New Zealand. Hi from the future, uh, because it's right now, it's tomorrow where I am, where your today is my tomorrow, because I'm like 18 hours ahead of you. Um, but we are actually sworn to secrecy here. We're not allowed to tell people what happens. So, but I will say everything is going to be fine, except for one thing, but everything else will be fine, except that one thing, but everything else. One, you can't tell us the one thing. Don't leave us in suspense. Sworn to, sworn to secrecy. Sworn to secrecy, man. Um, if I if I say anything, they make me move to Australia, where all the dangerous stuff is. They've got poisonous spiders and snakes and and jellyfish. I think they got poisonous caterpillars and butterflies there too. Everything's pointed poisons. I mean, the worst part about Australia is it's full of Australians. They're <laughs> they're everywhere. <laughs> well, yeah, I hear like they're all descended from like criminals too. So you got to be like pretty hardcore, I guess. Do you know, and, and I say this in total love because I do love the Australians. They're a lot of fun. But here's something funny. I just learned this here in the last uh, couple of weeks. So the Kiwi accent, um, and I'm not going to do it. I can't do it. Even though I had a Kiwi dad, uh, the Kiwi accent and the Aussie accent are very different. The Aussie ac accent is real twangy. So they have worked out the derivation of that accent comes from the drinking culture <laughs> in Australia. There was so much drinking going on that eventually it all kind of started to sound like a bit of a slur because they were just drunk 24-7, which I, the Aussies I know, they'd be pretty proud of that. They would be very proud of that. Uh, to your question, though, my favorite uh, book, I guess the most influential book for me, and I bet you've heard it before, it's Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams. Uh, because when I was growing up, here was literature, and my father gave me a copy of Wind in the Willows, 
And uh, that put me off reading for years because, <laughs> you know, for an eight-year-old, uh, literary allegory isn't really, you know, that's not really what, what I'm digging. And so I, I actually got into Harriet the Spy and all these kind of fun little kid novels. Um, but it was when I read Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, that was the first moment where I was like, wait a minute, there, so there are no rules. You can do anything in fiction. You can make any, you, you can create any, it hadn't been that apparent to me. I mean, he would break the fourth wall. He would, you know, other voices would come in, go on soliloquies and it was all fun. And so that was for me, one of my favorite books ever, because it just, it just opened the world up to me, a floodgate of like, you can do anything you want to do. The rule being is as long as you enjoy it, as long as you have fun with it. And hopefully somebody else does. Oh, wow. Like how old were you when you read uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? The curiosity. I was probably 13. Yeah, oh, cool. I, st I stumbled across it uh, uh, Bass Ackwards uh, because um, <laughs> when I was growing up in Minneapolis, um, my father was cheap. And so we didn't get no, we didn't get cable. That wasn't happening in our house. And so uh, I had to there was Channel 9, Channel 5 and Channel 2. Uh, <clears throat> that was pretty much it. Channel 11. And so Channel 2 was a PBS channel. And so um, I'd watch Doctor Who even as like, uh, you know, an American for the most part, even though I was Canadian, I grew up in the U.S. I'd watch Doctor Who. And then this other show came on. It was uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which was the televised version of the radio show and uh, and the book. And so that introduced me to the book. And I was like, oh, I want to read up more about this this story. And so that's how I got introduced to it, kind of in a roundabout way. Well, that's pretty cool. I remember, uh, actually, my story is pretty similar. I read my uh, first fiction book. I believe I was about nine. However old kids are in the third grade, I think it's like eight or nine. I had read uh, Michael right. Crichton's Jurassic Park, and it was I barely I had to read the book with like a dictionary right <laughs> right next to yeah. me uh, the whole time. But it, I, I found the whole concept of you know of like uh, really intriguing. And it really got me into actually eventually like writing my own like a uh, speculative fiction. And a couple of years later, I got into a uh, basically editing for other people and eventually I ended up here. I would ask you uh, what my future is going to hold because you're about 18 hours ahead of me, but you said you're That's sworn right. to secrecy. So I'll just, <laughs> we'll just get on to the interview questions then. <laughs> so I am a little bit curious. So I see, uh, I do research on everyone before they uh, come onto the show. I want to apologize. I did, when I was doing my research yesterday, I did leave the ladder against the side of your house, but so totally fine. Okay, perfect. All right. Some people get pissed off about that. But in my research, like you just mentioned uh, a moment ago that uh, you're Canadian, you lived in the US for a while, and you currently reside in New Zealand. So just based off of that, I'm assuming that either you just really like traveling, maybe you're a fugitive who's on the run right now, or maybe you just really miss being a subject of the British Commonwealth. So can you tell me a little bit more about uh, when you lived in Canada, when you moved to the US, and what inspired you to eventually moved to New Zealand where you are now? Uh, basically, and I'll say it's basically of all the things you mentioned, it's, it's a combination of all three. Uh, <laughs> take that for what it may. Uh, the FBI uh, is so listening, I, by the way. So. Yeah, you know, I've had an FBI check as part of actually becoming a New Zealand citizen, if you can believe it or not. Uh, yeah, I was uh, born in Canada. And uh, when I was nine years old, my, my father had come <clears throat> excuse me, from New Zealand to the U.S. He wanted to be the U.S. And they were like, no, 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 we're filled up on Kiwis. Go to Canada. They'll take anybody. And so he went to Canada. Eventually, he met my mother. But he always wanted to go to the United States. And so, so when I was nine years old, we went to New Jersey. <laughs> and so here I was, a red-haired, chubby, 
Canadian, my Canadian accent boy coming into the New Jersey school system. And that was a baptism by fire and sometimes literally. And so uh, the really the way that I was able to, it was a shy kid. I'm still a real shy person, but to be able to sort of defend myself uh, literally and figuratively, that's where the humor came in. In fact, um, uh, I remember one of the big moments was <laughs> these kids would come by because I was the new kid. So you sit by yourself, the punishing sort of like by yourself at the lunch table. And these kids would come by and they'd mess with me. And then they'd, they'd, they'd steal my like my, my snacks. And, 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 and the, back then you had snack pack pudding. And the cool thing about that, it came in metal tins. You bend the lid and you scoop that metal lid in there and you, you eat that. Oh, my. It was the greatest thing on the planet. You know, sure, there's potential tetanus because you kept your tongue wide open, but it was so good. And so, and for a chubby nine-year-old, that would, I, I needed that pudding. And so they would come on by and they'd, hey, what you got for lunch today? And eventually they'd take my pudding. And so one day I just, I just snapped. I was just like, I just, the only way. I had nothing I could say, but no pleading worked, no begging, no bartering, no hiding the pudding somewhere else. And so I just said, well, today I've got booger sandwiches and I got eyeballs. And I just went off on this sort of weirdness rant that my mind snapped and and they laughed and then they didn't take the pudding. And so my brain said, if you know, because it's a bit of a power shift, if you can make someone laugh, then suddenly they're kind of in your control or you're the lead at that point. And so somehow that really clicked in my head more than anything. I've just been in put in defense mode. <laughs> I then just started making sure I had some gross outlines, something when they came on by. And actually, all three of them eventually became friends, even though they were a couple of years older than me. But oh. that was a huge lesson for me. Uh, this this idea about the voodoo of humor. And so that stayed with you through my entire life. And so the family ended up moving to Minneapolis and I spent a lot of my formative years in Minneapolis. Um, so, you know, playing hockey and soccer because you have to, that's the rule. Uh, and uh, that, but when then I did stand up comedy uh, for when I turned about 18, 19. And the idea behind stand up comedy wasn't like, I want to get on stage and tell jokes. It wasn't that at all. I actually have no interest in being on mic or on stage. Uh, but what it was is I had started sending out uh, letters to like amazing stories in various places to get sto short stories published. And, and back then we used to, there was, you know, pre-internet. And so you would have to send out what was called an SASE, a self-addressed stamp envelope. And so you take that you put put the, uh, the envelope in there so that you basically you were paying for the rejection that was coming back to you. <laughs> and it would take, you know, weeks and months before it came back. And so after a half dozen of those or so, and especially the length of time it would take today, you get rejected pretty quick. <laughs> those rejections come flying in. <clears throat> and so uh, my brain said, because I was a big fan of stand up comedy and humor, I was like, if I could write something tonight. I could get on stage and I'm published in, in, in a way in my mind said this, this was being published. People would, would hear the words I had written that afternoon. And that was the beginning of my stand-up career. And I did that for three years and I honed sort of that style of set up and punchlines and storytelling because all the comedians that I love were storytellers. 
not in fashion to say anymore, but I have memorized all Bill Cosby's albums. Uh, but I knew them by heart. I still know a bunch of them, uh, uh, even though I haven't heard listened to them in decades and decades. But that sort of storytelling is what, what eventually got me up on stage. And then I moved into radio from there because the stand-up comedy market changed a bit. Um, basically, what happened was in the mid-90s, a lot of you know cable cha uh, channels started putting stand-up comedy because it's cheap marketing. You know, all you need is a brick wall, a microphone, and a guy or a gal to stand in between those two things. You got a TV show. Mm -hmm. So it was on the Food Channel and AD. Everybody had a stand-up show. And then there were fewer and fewer people showing up at clubs. And so I, I, I was like, I got to... I got to move into something else. And so, so, so my, basically my work day was 45 minutes. That's a pretty good work day. <laughs> and so I got in a radio, <laughs> got in a radio. Now I got to do three whole hours for a work day. Uh, but so, but I was able to transition from stand-up comedy and get into, to radio. And that's one of the things that, that got me to move all over the country because the only way you really advance in radio is by moving from market to market to market. And so I went from uh, a tiny little town in Missouri where my audience, I come in the morning, I'd say, literally say hi to the cows in the morning. We got to know each other <laughs> and I would turn the radio station on. It I'd have to actually turn it on. Like, almost like it was a big red switch. Like pedal a and bike was, or something was, to generate some electricity? Yeah, you know, I would not have been surprised if that was part of the gig because I wasn't paid a whole heck of a lot. There was a giant tower, the radio tower. It was only a 1,200-watt radio station, I think. But there's a tower behind uh, where I was sitting. <laughs> so I, I was probably getting a hair cancer the entire time I was there. But I went, I went from there to Florida to, uh, to another market in Florida to Southern California um, and then up to, as you mentioned, major market in Atlanta where I did uh, um, uh, some time at a rock station there and then transitioned into television, which eventually brought me here to New Zealand. And uh, I did television here as, as a producer. When I moved into television, uh, I got away from the microphone, got sort of behind the camera sort of thing. And I was composing um, television shows um, while other people put themselves in front of camera, in front of microphones. And I just wrapped that up here about two weeks ago. Um, the last show I was working, seven years on a news comedy show, a live news comedy show here in uh, in New Zealand. And now um, I'm transitioning right into you know, the full-time authorship. So this is a perfect time to be speaking with you. Oh, wow. You really weren't exaggerating when you said that you've been uh, avoiding proper work your entire life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that wasn't yeah. just a joke. Um, I had a question, actually. Um, you mentioned uh, Bill Cosby. Were there any other, uh, like, stand-up influences that you had i was curious besides up uh, cosby yeah i mean there was like i mean less fewer people know them but like bill hicks uh i was a big fan of yeah he, he was he had he had a great sort of you know someone who sort of embraced the sort of intelligence literary side but wasn't afraid of a cheap joke which i i think was pretty great uh, you know, George Carlin's and um, <laughs> Bob Newhart and Richard Pryor and Steve Martin, all all the old school guys. I really I really loved all those guys and and how they sort of broke in and, and kind of created. They took what was stand up comedy, this Shecky the Catskills thing, uh, you know, take my wife, please. And they they morphed it into this storytelling thing. And I love the storytelling of it. I loved that style of how you could take um, uh, a crowd on a journey with you. And they were willing to go. They wanted to go with you. So those are the guys I love the most. Did you ever meet any uh, like famous uh, stand-up comedians or any of your idols when you actually were uh, working? And if so, who? 
Yeah, uh, I, I spoke with uh, Kaz once uh, over comms when I was in television. <laughs> and this is, of course, before all the troubles um, uh, that's right. going on, obviously. But I was working with uh, Don Lemon at CNN, and Don was interviewing him about something. And and so uh, and so you got a picture, right? Because he had these, you know, billionaire. He had people all over the place, and there's a control room full of people. I'm thinking, this is yeah. the only chance I'll ever get a chance to speak to Bill Cosby, and I said, "Hey, I just want to say, Doctor Cosby, that that uh, I'm a." And, and somebody talked over me. He said, uh, "And I was like, Doctor Cosby," and then he was like, "Go ahead, kid." And then I said something, and I got stepped on. But I take that phrase, "Go ahead, kid," as you know, a hero of mine growing up was telling me, was saying to me directly to me, "Keep doing what you're doing." Oh, wow. <laughs> He might have just been saying, go ahead with what your question is. But I take it, I inferred that he was saying, I'm proud of what you're doing. I'm proud of how hard you work and keep doing what you're doing and, and you'll be big one day. And so but that, that's exactly. pretty much it. No. <laughs> but I interviewed a bunch of uh, various comedians over the years. Uh, Joe Rogan had been on my show a whole bunch of times way before his podcast oh, wow. years. Yeah, it was tough interviewing comedians uh, because, um, and not to get too in the weeds, but some comedians will come on and panel. They'll come on and do their bits and you set them up. And other comedians, because I did morning radio, these were people that normally slept until noon. So to come on and do a morning show, sometimes they just, they weren't into it. They were only there to promote their show and they just got no jokes. And they just, they're not, they're not doing it. And those were hard conversations to have. Uh, but for the most part, uh, yeah, I had, a, I had a great time. I met a bunch of actors. I, I met musicians. I spoke with uh, Ozzy Osbourne and Steven Tyler and Gene Simmons and Billy Bob Thornton. Um, uh, Tanny Newton just recently, actually, for uh, the television show. Uh, Rebecca Ferguson. Uh, Patrick Stewart, who plays uh, John Luke Picard, met a whole bunch of these folks, and it, it was it is neat, sort of, kind of connecting with them in a, in, a, in, a, in some way. I always notice, and I know I'm going on and on, but it is fascinating. Mm -hmm. I noticed that the older they were, and this is pretty, um, I found this almost universally. The older they were, the more they realized how lucky they were. And it was like the much younger ones were pretty cocky and like, yeah, of course I deserve to be here. And the older they were, they were like, I can't believe I'm still doing this. I can't believe I got this. In fact, Stephen Teller of Aerosmith said, we weren't the best man to come out of Boston. He said, we weren't even in the top 30. We just got really lucky. And he and, and, and so many of them were that way. They realized that like writing and like music and movies, you got to bust your hump and you can do really well. But there does happen to... For the people that really knock it out of the park, there's a moment of luck. Uh, you need a little bit of moment of luck. Sometimes you can kind of create that space to help make that luck happen. And sometimes it just happens to you. That's a good point. I really found that your Bill Cosby story to be uh, very inspirational. And I think for the guests <laughs> listening, that's a, the thing we want to take away from that is the power of positive mm -hmm. thinking. Or as like Gene Simmons said one, once before, I, I'm just paraphrasing, uh, life is too short to have nothing but delusions about yourself. <laughs> but, <laughs> all right. So uh, I think you mentioned that uh, you have narcolepsy. So I'm yeah. really curious. I'm sure the audience is as well. Why do you consider that like a superpower uh, for your writing? So when I first got, and this is for anybody who ever has something that's sort of troubling them, they don't know, but I didn't know what I'd had for the first 25, 20 years of my life. I just knew that I was tired all the time. And my father used to tease me. He'd say, oh, because I'd take naps through the day all the time. 
I would fall asleep somewhere. He always going through another growth spurt, which was supposed to be funny because I'm not even five foot eight. So it's just that's his that's his uh, New Zealander passive aggressive way of saying I was lazy. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'd always been tired. And so when I got diagnosed uh, having narcolepsy, it was initially it was like then you can kind of put a face on it. And if you don't know what narcolepsy is, it just it's uh, you're sleepy all the time. That's what it is. You're just sleepy all the time. And I am sleepy all the time. And it's something I have to even speaking with you now, I have to really focus and pay attention. Otherwise, my mind will begin to drift off in various places. And so uh, in the first couple of years, I was kind of like, well, I got saddled with this. This this is this isn't fair. And I tried various uh, treatments and various uh, prescription drugs that prescribed to me. Um, but a lot of them, the ones that would kind of amp you up and wake you up, just kind of made you angry. But, and so I got rid of all those. I am on something called modafinil that doesn't really do that. It kind of, it sort of just makes you, you forget sometimes that you're so sleepy. But in that interim, in that time, when I started to try and take more control of it, I realized that I was really lucky because you know that moment when you're lying down to fall asleep? Yeah. When you're lying down in bed, and you're just sort of drifting between wake and sleep and your mind starts to go all over the place and you come up with these amazing ideas. You think, I better write that down. That's, that's, that's really cool. And then you fall asleep and you wake up the next day and you didn't write it down and you can't remember it. <laughs> it that that sleep-wake state, I'm there about 80-85% of the day in that sort of hazy sort of sleepy state and so i really feel that being there that gives me an opportunity to create stories that i don't think a lot of other people would consider or just being able to um accept sort of these gifts that come down and i go yeah let's do that let's do a wolf that gets bitten by an infected man that turns into a human <laughs> you know a reverse <laughs> werewolf story of course why not do that and i really credit narcolepsy to a lot of that you know um it's, it's a way of sort of taking creative governors off. Now, as a copy editor, you get this. At some point, you do have to kind of put some stuff on a bit of a, a, a line. But when I get there, when I get, when I get all that clay that I smash in there together, um, that a lot, I think, comes from being in that sleepy state through most of my day. Wow, like, it's like turning like a, uh, like a weakness into a strength. Have you ever considered maybe uh, with your ability, like joining the X-Men, you probably wouldn't be that useful in crime fighting, but you know, I think it would be pretty cool. I feel that's like, a, like, your, that's like your X-Factor, your X-Gene, as they call it in the See, I, I could be I could be the insult X-Men. Because I did stand-up comedy and I did radio. I, could, <laughs> I don't have any superpowers, <laughs> but I did nice tights. You know, you know, I could be, I could be that superhero, the one with the mouth. I probably get my butt kicked a lot. I need to have all the strong folks around me, but I could be an X Men. I could do that. I might be the triple X Men, depending on uh, what dangerous the situation was. But yeah. So uh, you had just mentioned uh, uh, that you have a book series uh, about a uh, a werewolf who uh, becomes a man right. called Cain. Uh, so could you, for people who haven't heard of it, who haven't read it, could you give us like a brief like a uh, synopsis or overview of uh, what it's about? Yeah. So uh, so Cain is a six foot seven French Canadian. He's a big dude. But the previous year, uh, he'd been a wolf running around in the woods and this infected man bites him. He's crazed infected man bites him. And then the next morning he wakes up and he's a human. He's a he's a teenage human boy. Uh, and and thankfully, this French Canadian couple bring him in and they raise him over that year. And he he grows 10 years in that time because he's not really human. He's basically a wolf. And so 
what happens is he then, when he, that after that year, he goes out and he's trying to find this guy who bit him, find out what changed him because he wants to find the secret to that so he can change back and become a wolf again. So he can run free and naked in the woods. I mean, he could do that as a human, but he'd probably get incarcerated and probably get frostbite, a really unfortunate frostbite. Um, <laughs> and then he meets up with this uh, young woman named Imelda, who is kind of a part-time criminal. Because one thing, and he hires her, because the one thing about wolves is <laughs> that become human is he learns French, and then he learns English, and he starts learning the ways of humans. But the driving thing, he can't quite get the motor skills down. His, his animal mind, doesn't that doesn't make sense. And so she had been a getaway driver in a, in a bunch of different scenarios, and so she ends up becoming his driver. And of course, as you'd expect, then gets invested in his story to track down this guy who bit him uh, to try and find out the secret of this. And then they discover that there's this hidden sort of shadow government organization and super soldiers and and then the fact that that biting man bit other people and created these monsters so they got to take down some of these monsters and so it's a fun it's just a fun thrill ride i, I really i really enjoyed riding it and people have seemed to really respond to it one of the one that quirks to it and this isn't a pitch for the book i just find it really funny to me so one of the quirks to it is as a writer creating the story and I had not intended to write a monster book. And really, it's not a monster book. It's got a monster in it, but it's not a monster book. Right. Uh, because I don't follow any of the rules because I actually, I never read a whole bunch of, bunch of monster books. I've read Frankenstein by Mary Shelley, <laughs> and that's it. I don't really read monster books. Uh, but so uh, I was thinking, as, a, as an author, as I'm writing this, I a werewolf because that's what happens when the when the full moon comes out this six foot seven french canadian ah, he turns into a werewolf right right but i didn't want to wait to just the full moon comes up that's a long time as in a story so right. i started to think well why is it just a full moon that he turns into ah werewolf what about a, a half moon or quarter moon why, why not those it's still moonlight and so i my mind author mind started to say well what if he was then maybe a lesser wolf of some sort and the answer to that is a lesser wolf is is a dog and so when there's a little sliver of a moon that comes out and he steps out in the moonlight he becomes a little lap dog if it's a half moon he turns into a pug and people love the pug uh if he if it's a three-quarter moon he turns into a rottweiler and so that became a real fun sort of uh exercise and playing around with that and for the authors listening it then also became a little bit more than that um because it's not just about the joke of that of course it's also about he's changing so what is it about him becoming a pug or a golden retriever or any of these things how is that affecting him as a character and so that actually does play out in the story where when he becomes, let's say, a golden retriever is the best example. That's a comfort dog. And he finds that when he's when he's taking on enemies, he now has more compassion than he had before. He has a little bit more empathy. And this is screwing up his head a bit. And so that when you're writing stories, you really want to take in all those bits and pieces of your character and realize the growth and progression of a character. And so every time he turns into one of these dogs, one of these other animals, he takes a little bit of them with him when he transforms back the following day. And that has also been a fun sort of thing for readers, but also as a writer, how, how might this type of temperament affect him as a person? And so that's been, that's been really fun to sort of explore. 
You know, I, I really see uh, with the concept here, I feel like you kind of like subverted the whole concept of, of you know, the, the wolf man. Uh, he gets bitten and he turns into a werewolf. And it kind of reminds me a bit, uh, one of my favorite uh, comedians, uh, I think this might uh, come from your humor background. One of my favorite comedians is, uh, you might know Dan Whitney, Larry the Cable Guy. Um, I, I know it's I, weird. I, I really do like you know, Do you know this already? I, I, I actually opened for Larry the Cable Guy. He's a good oh, friend. You, really? Oh, wow. Yeah. Dan Dan Whitney he <laughs> he uh, he he and I the last gig he and I did together was at a Chinese food restaurant. There's a little annex off the side of it mm-hmm. uh, at a Chinese food restaurant. And he was headlining, and I did half an hour for him because uh, he's a Florida comedian, yeah. and he's a good cat. He's a really good dude, and uh, yeah, he and it was fun to watch his progression too. Because years later, it was in rock radio, and he'd call up the radio show. Uh, he'd call in because you know Larry's a character is one oh, of yeah. Dan's characters. Mm-hmm. He's the character that he does but even he was sort of surprised and we talked a little bit ago talking about that moment of luck and what happened was is he was putting himself out there man he was he was calling radio shows around the country and putting himself out there putting himself out there and then jeff foxworthy found him and said hey come on my tour and the moment that jeff foxworthy put him on his tour and then dan blew up so that was a moment of luck that he needed to become a superstar but he earned that, or at least put himself in a position to be able to make that luck happen. Because had he not been calling radio stations and putting himself out left and right all everywhere he could, that never would have happened. Sitting at home by himself, hoping people would find him, Jeff Foxworthy never would have rang up on a, uh, rang up his phone. Yep, just sitting at home saying "get her done" is not gonna exactly. get yeah, people yeah. knocking down your door. But uh, what, what I was saying right. is, what I really like about his comedic style, he does this uh, kind of thing where. Uh, like I mentioned, like how you had kind of taken the concept of, you know, the werewolf and kind of like twisted it on Ted. He does this thing. Like I remember uh, one of my favorite jokes of his, he says, um, he's talking to his girlfriend one day and she told him, you're going to hear the pitter patter of a little feet soon. And he says, oh, you're pregnant. She's like, no, I'm cheating on you with a midget. So, you know, he, <laughs> he takes that, that common saying, and then he completely flips it. And I feel that's kind of what you did with like the, uh, the concept of like the whole werewolf and the wolf man and Kane. And I really think that's very interesting. I'm probably going to pick up a copy of the book later after the interview. So I could definitely read I it. Hope you do. And oh. if you don't have a chance, if you don't have time to actually read through it, um, I got some uh, amazing news here in the last week or so. The podium audiobook of the first book is coming out here January 16th which is really exciting because there's two L.A. Hollywood actors that are going to act the story out. How neat is that? Oh, wow. Are there going to be actual dogs and, and wolves like barking as well uh, for Kane's <laughs> parts in the book? I think to keep it authentic, I think, I think I, you should. <laughs> who, I, who knows? You know, you, they might have asked Marie to do that, uh, and that might appeal to a certain segment of the population if you're into that. That's great. <laughs> but but no, I am, I am very, very thrilled, uh, and I'm really lucky in that sense, too. Um, and that also came from from really promoting the book a lot early on in the first couple of weeks. My, yeah. book, uh, my book hit number one in various categories on Amazon. On and podium, thank you. And, and podium saw that they were like, "Oh, we want to get in on this." And now I've got these, you know. And that's really it's going to be really fascinating because I wrote this book in <laughs> in a two car carpeted garage in Auckland, New Zealand, at four o'clock in the morning uh, because everybody here carpets their garages. People don't drive; they don't park the cars in there. They make it part of the house. I don't know why; it's just how it is. <laughs> so my office is in our two car garage. So something I crafted at four a.m. in a two car garage in Auckland. Two Hollywood actors are going to put their their skills and passion and voice and energy behind this and bring the story to life. And it's really thrilling. And I can't. It's it's come just about a month away. I can't wait for it. Oh wow! 
Sounds pretty exciting. Um, so oh, yeah. I guess I wanted to get into a couple of questions regarding uh, like humor writing. Uh, so sure. in your experience, how do you strike a balance between actually uh, like writing humor and actually uh, plot progression? I don't worry too much about plot progression. Um, I worry about the characters. And as long as I'm investing enough into the characters, the characters will tell me where they want to go. Um, and again, same thing as we were talking before, within a reason, you know, that's about 90% of it. And, and they'll take me through that. But I don't, uh, I'm a pantser, a discovery writer. I'm not somebody who plots everything out. But when it comes to writing humor, you know, the old line, kill your darlings, right? If I've got a great joke in there that, that this is going to make somebody laugh out loud. And I do have people say that, I can't believe it. You're actually, I'm reading something and you've made me laugh out loud. But if the joke doesn't help the story, if the joke doesn't, it maybe is incongruous to the character, even if it's a great joke, I take it out. It, it, for as great as it might be, it's still got to be true to the character. And so, and who knows, if it's a great joke, hold on to it. It might fit somebody else down the road. But, but humor writing isn't about doing jokes. At least I feel it's not about doing jokes. I'm not, I'm not doing a stand-up comedy in a book. It's about creating scenarios and relationships that can bring on moments that are funny. And that's basically what it is. It's not about writing setup and punchlines. But you can definitely do a joke where you set it up 50 pages earlier and, and have a version of a punchline later on in the book, which happens in a couple of these books that I, moments that I really love because I know that they never saw it coming, you know, that, that Kane might say something and it's a reference to something that happened 30, 50 pages ago. And that becomes really funny because it comes out, comes out just sideways and that makes it a really fun moment. Oh, wow. Awesome. So I know uh, like certain sometimes stand-up comedians when they're uh, testing out new routines, uh, they will actually you know perform them in like front of live audiences to see how they go over. So when you're uh, like writing the books like these that are, that have humor in them and comedy in them, how do you actually test these out to see if your jokes actually would land and resonate uh, with your audience? See, the advantage I guess I have, like you mentioned, so I did stand-up comedy for a couple of years, yeah. and this will help some folks, I suppose. And then I did radio, and that was humor. There was a lot of humor in that for a good dozen years or so. So I always felt that if I find it funny, there's a good chance somebody else will. So I, I don't worry as much about, will this joke land? Or will, will this work? I've Luckily, I've sort of honed that enough now where if I think it's a funny moment, and don't think I'm crafting this out. I'm not sitting there going like, how do I write a funny joke here? These are voices, not literal, but they are voices that come to me. There was, a, so I, this is a great example. It's a very, very, very small example, but it's a great example of what I'm talking about. In another series uh, that, that I, I did, I had these two characters and they were breaking into like this tech headquarters. It was like a Facebook kind of thing, right? Yeah. Uh, evil Facebook. <laughs> I think Facebook is was, evil, so that's kind of a knock. It might be, it might be. <laughs> but they were, sneaking, they were sneaking underneath. And so there's this tunnel underneath and the floor is electrified. So if they touch the floor, they'll die and right. they're being pursued by the bad guys and but there's these Roombas and so the two of them they each hop onto a Roomba <laughs> and and that's just a robot vacuum cleaner and so they're riding these Roombas underneath the, through this tunnel and you got to keep in mind they're being pursued by the bad guys who want to kill them if they touch the floor that'll kill them but and I had not planned this at all but as these guys are, are kind of crossing through underneath through the tunnel Suddenly, one decides they want to beat the other one. And then the other one sees this, and he, it turns into a race. And I, there was no point that I write down Raz and the actor decide they're going to race. 
Not at all. But these characters, once you get to know them well enough, of course, these two morons are going to want to race. It doesn't matter that everything around them is trying to kill them. He wants to beat him inside. <laughs> I, and, and so, like, you know, the actor pulls off a sock and throws it forward. So the Roomba chases after his sock and, and moves his. And then, the, and then Raz is doing something else. But that <laughs> scenario of these two characters competing and trying to get there faster and faster, even though all this crazy stuff is happening around them, that they, they focus on this moment of beating each other across the line that came just knowing the characters and that fun moment just came from knowing the characters and so so i, I think you really i i really trust in this idea of the, you kind of bake your subconscious you get those characters into your subconscious and they will feed that stuff into you they'll give that stuff into you but from the writing side of it when it comes to a test audience i do have beta readers and that's really helpful to have my wife doesn't read my stuff she, she, she doesn't read my books at all. She loves me to death and she's very supportive. But she always says, when I read your books, it's, it's like I can hear you talking. Apparently, that's negative. <laughs> Apparently, she don't want to hear me talk. And so, but I think what she's saying is it takes you out of the story because she can hear my voice um, when she's reading it. So um, I have, over the last couple of years, I've sort of picked up you know, readers that have really invested in the stuff I do. And that will happen over time. You'll, you'll find people that really love what you're right. doing and, and you don't want sick offense. You don't want somebody to say everything you're doing is great. And I've got some people that were harsh. I do name Ron. Every time I write something, I'm like, okay, Ron's emails coming in. He's going to find a lot of stuff <laughs> wrong with this. And you decide the stuff that you want to take in. You decide the other stuff. You say, oh, no, I don't necessarily agree with that. That's his opinion. That's great. But finding some, you know, a half dozen folks. And there's plenty of writing forums around. Like, uh, was it Write Absolute or whatever? There's a good number of writing forums oh, yeah. around. But finding some folks that can read through your stuff. And most importantly, you don't have to take it all to heart. You decide if that works for you. And, and you have got to get rid of your ego. Don't decide it doesn't work for you because you really love it or you really think it's right. When it comes to editing, chuck your ego out. Yeah. And, and you know this as an editor, too. When, when, an, when an author comes to you, he's got to get rid of that ego, or that is a battle for you. Get rid of the ego when it comes to the editing. You have your ego all you want when you're writing, but be humble when you're editing. Yep. It's like you I said earlier, uh, you got to kill your darlings sometimes. Total, 100%, right. 110% agree with the, uh, the beta readers idea. Also, um, if you go on Facebook, if you just type in like beta readers, there's like, tens and 10 20 50 groups on there uh, where you could find people who will you know give you that impartial feedback and yeah i actually suggest that a lot of times uh, to my audience as well and when you get that feedback you should take it seriously but like you said don't take it personally right and then choose the stuff that you think is right like you know um like ron had said something about the most recent one. i just finished up uh, book three of the series which comes out in a couple of weeks and so i gotta get that up on amazon but uh he had four points that he pointed out and they're all valid points but really only one of them really stuck in my head where I, you know what he's probably right i've got to make an adjustment there because the other ones they were opinions and and he said they didn't take him away from the story but maybe he might be nitpicking and so yeah those beta readers are are valuable and you cultivate them and you make sure you take care of them if you do have beta readers make sure you mention them in the acknowledgments at the end make sure they get a bit of pay right. that way um and if you can do something a little bit special for them you know i mean you send them a signed book or whatever it might be um but yeah they're great they're fantastic and i, lo I love the ones i've got all right awesome beta reader so we've had a lot of uh a lot of good points have been made so far. If you're about to get robbed, uh, make a joke and people will no longer rob you. 
uh, inspirational <laughs> quotes from Bill Cosby. Uh, right. Use beta readers for impartial feedback that you can use to improve your stories uh, and your in the va- your manuscript in various edits. So as far as uh, like some people like really struggle with uh, like comedy and with humor, uh, do you have any like uh, books or I'm, I'm sure it's kind of easy for you based off of your background as you've described it uh, to me, but do you have like any books or resources that you'd recommend uh, to an author who is looking to add uh, more comedic elements into their existing works or to just start writing humor uh, uh, from the ground up? I would recommend this new series called Kane. Um, <laughs> but no, seriously, I would recommend just just reading books um, that are funny. Uh, that's your best bet. Um, you can get into the technical side, and there's plenty of that. And there are rules about, you know, double switches or, you know, the, you know, I've got a whole bunch of rules. I've got, I've got a, a bunch of me. If you want to take a look at my TikTok page, I've got a bunch of like rules for being funny, but those are just structures. Really what it comes down to is if you create a couple of characters together, that interaction could be funny. And, and you can, you know, I joke about, you call it plagiarizing life. If there's a moment where you're talking with somebody and somebody says funny or something funny happens, or even something that's sort of notable happens, write that down. Because if you've had a, a you know, like right now I'm fighting with my uh, hot water heater and, mm-hmm. and it's winning. <laughs> that, that, <laughs> that thing, that inanimate object is beating me right now. And even as I say that, that's funny. It's not dragged down funny, but you could take that. You could, you say this, and there's something funny in that, the fact that this man is fighting a hot water heater that has no, <laughs> doesn't even know he's in, in the fight. But maybe you personify it. Maybe maybe it's an evil hot water heater, whatever it might be. But that's what I mean. If uh, There's so many people that can relate this idea of getting mad at some inanimate object, and then you find that that's that's the humor ground. You know there's something there and explore it a bit. Uh, the one thing I will say, especially if you're sort of just starting out with humor, don't force it. Please don't force it. There's nothing wrong with a smile. Smiles are great. Not everything has to be a joke. And one of the things I loathe when I'm reading something, like anytime somebody does a funny line in any of my stories, what I think is a funny line, I don't have people laugh. I hate that in stories. That's just my personal thing, maybe. But when a character says something and everybody dies laughing, it's like, yeah, I'm not laughing. No, why are they like la- that? Annoys me to no end. Don't oversell it. Just have the moment play out and move on. Uh, not everybody in the room has to laugh as a cue to the reader they should be laughing. Um, so I, that's all I would say about that. Is no laugh moments tracks. that are fun. Yeah, it does feel like a laugh track. It feels like it feels forced. Um, so humor writing is more about situational. You know, is about conversation between two people. And sometimes it's just calling something out. If something feels, if one character says something, and I love this, you see more and more of this all the time. If one character says something that 10, 15 years ago, we might've seen more of, and the other person can say something like, okay, get over yourself. You know, something like that is pretty great. If it stays within the character, sort of going in and calling somebody out is is a lot of fun. And that just that hyper-realism of a conversation. Um, Because that's one of the things that I really pride myself is um, in the dialogue that I have in my books. For the most part, I feel that, or at least people tell me, that it seems quite real. And, and I've had people ask me, well, how do you do that? And it's like, I, I, I don't know. It's, to be honest, it's probably because these characters are talking in my head. <laughs> and I'm writing all that stuff down. But you, maybe you say it out loud. Uh, you try and say it out loud. Does this feel real? Uh, does this feel like something somebody would say to somebody else? If it doesn't, 
You don't need flowery words. Just use your little, you know, fourth, fifth grade words. Those are totally fine. Um, whatever you want to do to make the conversation as real as possible. Because I feel that one of the things will yank you out of a story faster than anything else is just the stilted, I must jam a plot point or I must jam something into this sentence or into this uh, conversation that's going to launch us further. Just find a more casual way to do it. Readers are smart. They'll pick up on it. Right. No info dumping as well oh god it's the worst you know something that tom clancy um you know you read page after page after page it's like where is the story Crichton <laughs> used to do a wee bit of that too Crichton oh, used yeah. to do a fair bit of that um but Crichton also could write in a, in a way that actually um you saw the movie in your head so he he had his great qualities as well oh yeah awesome all right and so I was actually pretty amazed by uh, the water history because I didn't even know they actually had running water in New Zealand. So that's that's actually <laughs> that's actually news to me. We we've got uh, indoor heating, uh, but basically we oh, set wow. fires in each individual room. That's <laughs> oh, I see. Because like we, when we, I, we when I think, get... it's like when I think New Zealand, uh, Dick, I think uh, like people riding dingoes and like throwing boomerangs to like catch dingoes is over Australia. So oh, you, I'm sorry. You culturally I'm sorry. got it wrong. No, we're 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 the nice place. Australia has the dingoes and the boomerangs or whatever else you want to call Australians. It, it has all those things <laughs> over there. No, New, Ze- New Zealand's great. New Zealand has has everything we want here except for maybe variety when it comes to like you go to the store for if you want yourself a diet coke, you got mm-hmm. two two kinds of diet coke and that's for the most part that's it. You're done. There's just not 75 varieties like there is in the u.s and once you get past that you're golden yeah <laughs> so i uh, think if if uh, any of the listeners wanted to learn uh, more about you or to follow you or to actually uh, pick up the cane uh, book series where could they uh learn more about you and what you're up to uh they just hit on my website it's just my name dickweiber.com and i and i got to expect too uh before we go i know that there's probably a number of people that are listening to this podcast that have been trying to write or trying to finish a story. And the one bit of advice I'll say to you is just keep doing it. Just don't worry so much about all the bits and pieces. Don't worry so much about getting it all right. Because first drafts are terrible. Everybody's mm-hmm. first draft is terrible. Just, and I call building your clay. Just get all your clay in there. Keep writing. And if you get stuck, push yourself. Just keep keep writing. You might cut it later, but you want that momentum to keep going. If it's one, if you can't do... Uh, if you, if you can't do 5,000 words in a day, do 1,000. If you can't do 1,000, just do a page. If you can't do a page, do a paragraph. If you can't do a paragraph, do a sentence. If you can't do a sentence, do a word. Just every day, keep pushing forward. Eventually, you'll get done. And that's an amazing feeling. Even when it's a steaming pile, when you're done, you're at the end. And you still, you got to edit it. But that gives you a little bit That gives you a little bit of a boost. So you can go back and, and you can you cut that down and make that shine and get something like... Uh, like uh, like Ray here to help you out and tighten that story up. But just keep writing. Don't worry so much about all the bits and pieces. Keep moving forward and get your clay together until you can make something that's great. Whew. Those are some good words there from uh, Dick Wybrows. Keep writing. You can't write a sentence, write a word. You can't write a word, write a letter. If you can't write a yep. letter, well, write some, <laughs> write part of a letter. <laughs> All right. And that is it for this episode of the Pen to Profit podcast. I have been your host, Ray Evans, joined by uh, Dick Wybrow. And we had a lot of gems here today. If you did enjoy this episode, please be sure to hit that subscribe button and leave a five-star review. And and I'm signing off for today. As we say around these parts, the pen is mightier than the sword. Unless you're in a sword fight, then you might want to reconsider your options. Have a good night, folks. 
Thanks for tuning in to the Pin to Profit Podcast. If you've enjoyed hanging out with us today, swing by iTunes or your podcast app of choice and leave a rating and write a review. And don't forget to hit that subscribe button to get more of this grammar goulash delivered piping hot to your ear holes every week. And if you're looking for more tips, tricks, and free trainings that aren't available anywhere else, click the link in the show notes to join the Author Success Hub Facebook group. It's one part mastermind group and one part creative writing workshop. Except you can attend in your pajamas without judgment. Plus, you'll be mixing it up with fellow authors who are all about that writing and profiting life. Until next time, keep putting pen to paper and turning those pages to profit. Ciao.